everyone. Uh, it is my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Sergio Munoz Gomez. Sergio is joining us from Dalhousie University from Nova Scotia, Halifax. Uh, and he's a graduate student in um, the cell biology, in evolutionary biology, as well as bioinformatics departments of Dalhousie University. Um, Sergio received his uh, bachelor's degree in biology um, from University of Antigua in Colombia, and then he moved to Canada to receive his PhD, where he, which he's still working towards, but he received a master's of science degree in 2015 from Dalhousie University, and he stayed uh, further in furtherance of his research. I met Sergio during my visit to Dalhousie University a few weeks ago, and I was very impressed by his vision, his perspective on um, questions that really require a big vision, but yet he follows a very detailed um, molecular approach in order to answer these big questions in science. And I thought that his research would be very relevant for the astrobiology community, and I look forward to uh, listening uh, Sergio and see what you know, hear about what he will talk to us today. So thank you, Sergio, and I will mute myself and it's all yours. Thanks. Okay, thank you very much, Petula, and thank you for the invitation. Uh, I just want to make sure that you are looking at my slide right now. Is that right? No, I see a black screen. Is it just me? I see a black screen also. I see a mouse screen. I see a mouse. Let me try to fix this. There you go. Now? Yeah, that's good. Is it working now? Yeah. Okay, so I want to talk today about uh, what I'm focusing for my PhD project, which is the early evolution of mitochondria. And more specifically, I want to talk about uh, how mitochondria became very specialized respiratory or bioenergetic organelles of eukaryotes, which is one of my main interests. So I just want to start by uh, saying something very general, something that probably most of you know, which is that mitochondria are organelles of endosymbiotic origin, which means that unlike all the major organelles of the eukaryotic cell, such as the nucleus, uh, the endomembrane system, the ER, the Golgi apparatus, the flagella and the cytoskeleton, it turns out that mitochondria actually came from outside the cell. That is, mitochondria have uh, exogenous or endosymbiotic origin. So in our very distant past, um, a host, probably uh, some kind of archaeon, we now have found a very close relative of eukaryotes, which is called Lochiarchaeum, probably internalized the ancestor of mitochondria. So that means that mitochondria have an endosymbiotic origin. So it didn't evolve from within the cell, but it came from outside. So we know that mitochondria came from outside the cell, but we don't know exactly what kind of cell gave rise to mitochondria. So in the last two or three decades, uh, several different phyto phylogenetic studies have actually uh, revealed the major group from which mitochondria evolved. And it turns out that the group that gave rise to mitochondria is called alpha-proteobacteria. And here on the screen, 
we have a, a very simplified phylogenetic tree of this group, alpha pluribacteria. And it turns out that when we incorporate mitochondrial sequences into this analysis, mitochondrial branch at the base of alpha pluribacteria, what we, but we are not certain whether it is branching with all this major group uh, up here or with the other group that is called Rickettsialis. So this larger group that is composed of uh, five different orders is usually composed of uh, very versatile and metabolically complex bacteria. But the oil group that is called the Rickettsialis is composed by very simplified and intracellular bacteria. So depending on where mitochondria is branching, which something that is something we don't know yet, uh, that position will have very different, different implications for the origin of mitochondria and therefore also eukaryotes. So under the first uh, alternative, then the ancestor of mitochondria would have been very probably a purple non-sulfur bacterium, which is an alpha bacterium that had the capability of performing photosynthesis and oxygenic photosynthesis. But under the other alternative, in which mitochondria evolved from Rickettsialis, or, or has a common ancestor with Rickettsialis, then the ancestor of mitochondria was probably already a very reduced bacterium that had adapted to inter, uh, a specific intracellular lifestyle. So then that bacterium would have been an intracellular endosymbiont. So we have two different options that have different implications for the very early evolution of mitochondria. Now, uh, the origin of mitochondria from a specific bacterium and its conversion into an organelle require a lot of changes. So irrespective of whether the ancestor of mitochondria was a purple bacterium, a complex bacterium, or a very simplified endosymbiotic bacterium, a lot of very different changes happen to give rise to modern mitochondria, which are very integrated organelles in the economy of the eukaryotic cell. So because so many changes happen, and we know what kinds of changes happen, but we don't know in what order and when they happened. Uh, so, so many things happen that I call these the dark ages of mitochondrial evolution, because we don't know in what order and exactly how they happen, although no, we know already what, what happened. So just uh, to clarify some terminology, when I talk about the pre-mitochondria, I'm referring to the um, alpha pluribacterial ancestors of mitochondria, whether free-living or endosymbiotic. And then when I talk about mitochondria, I'm talking about a fully developed organelle that, uh, that is present in more eukaryotes. And, and the transition between the pre-mitochondria and a fully developed organelle um, happen throughout many stages that I designate the proto-mitochondria. Proto so just to, just to make this point that a lot of changes had to happen between the uh, bacterial ancestor of mitochondria and fully de developed mitochondria, I want to show you this slide in which basically we had to go from a prurium that was basically, a prurium is the whole set of proteins of an organism. So a prurium that was mostly composed of uh, alpha-pluribacterial proteins to a prurium in more mitochondria 
which is 80% eukaryotic and only 20% alpha bacteria. And what this means is that, uh, first, that the alpha, ancestral alpha pluribacterial proteome was highly reduced. A lot of proteins were lost or transferred to the eukaryotic nucleus. And then the second major uh, point that I want to make is that a significant fraction of the mitochondrial proteome was actually invented by the eukaryotic host. So this is just to make the point that more mitochondria, even though they descend from alpha pluribacteria, they're drastically different in many different aspects. And these are only, this is a list of some of the major innovations that had to happen in order to transform a bacterium into the mitochondrial organelle. So first we had, for example, some gene loss. A lot of genes had to be lost in adaptation to an intracellular, uh, intracellular lifestyle. And therefore the genome of the bacterium was reduced. But then we also have some uh, <clears throat> gene transfer to the nucleus. A lot of, some of these genes were not lost, but were transferred to the nucleus of the host. And then the host started uh, exerting certain control on the biogenesis and the development of the new endosymbiont or organelle. And then because genes were already in the nucleus of a host, those proteins were being synthesized in cytosolic ribosomes. And those proteins had to come back to the nascent organelle somehow. So protein targeting or import machinery had to evolve as well. And this is probably one of the most interesting aspects of mitochondrial evolution because the protein import machinery actually has its origins in the protein export machinery of alpha pluribacteria. What happened was that um, this machinery was modified with the help of new eukaryotic proteins in order to import proteins rather than secrete proteins. Other changes that happened during the transition to uh, the origin of mitochondria include um, the origin of a mechanism to divide mitochondria, which is fully controlled by the host. Also, uh, interactions with the cytoskeleton and different endomembranes in order to shape mitochondria, distribute mitochondria, and inherit mitochondria in different ways. So the host had to gain control over the new uh, the newly evolving organelle by basically uh, making them interact with the cytoskeleton and position those organelles in key places so we could so the host could maximize the bioenergetic output of the new organelle. Then it turns out that some mitochondria can actually fuse, and this is also an adaptation that some eukaryotes have found to maximize uh, respiratory efficiency. And finally, the development of cristae, which, which are invaginations of the mitochondrial inner membrane, was another uh, very important step in the uh, specialization of, of mitochondria as a respiratory organelle. But mitochondria are more than the powerhouses of the eukaryotic cell. And this is just to show that mitochondria are very, very integrated into the economy of the host, of the eukaryotic host, and therefore uh, they have also acquired new functions. So in addition to aerobic respiration and, um, and accessory functions, such as the biosynthesis of ubiquinol, cardiolipine, and heme, 
uh, mitochondria are also involved in the metabolism of amino acids and fatty acids and also in the biogenesis of iron sulfur clusters which are um, cofactors of proteins that are actually exported from the mitochondria to the cytoplasm so the cytoplasm so cytoplasmic proteins can actually can also make use of these uh, cofactors that are only synthesized inside the mitochondria and additionally in some uh, multicellular organisms in particular mitochondria have actually acquired very important roles in cell signaling and apoptosis so now I want to talk about how the, the mitochondrion specialized specialized as a bioenergetic organal so what it's saying is that there were two major sets of adaptations that enabled mitochondria to be a very, very efficient bioenergetic organelle of eukaryotes. Because if you think about the bacterial ancestors of mitochondria, they have a lot of functions, but modern mitochondria are very specialized to very few functions, among which respiration is probably the most important. So a lot of these two major adaptations allowed mitochondria to to perform this these few functions very efficiently so the first one has is related to the overall morphology of mitochondria and the distribution of mitochondria and therefore this means that mitochondrial dynamic behavior is an adaptation to bioenergetic function so if we look at the distribution and the shape of mitochondria in very different eukaryotes we see that well precisely mitochondria assume shapes and localizations uh, that maximize their function. For example, in sperm cells, mitochondria actually localize to the neck of these cells where a lot of ATP is consumed for uh, flagellar uh, movement. In E cells, for example, mitochondria fuse to form networks that localize to the periphery of the cell and therefore is close to um, to oxygen and also this particular morphology apparently is contributing to uh, maximize uh, respiratory output mostly because uh, products are shared between different mitochondria and also uh, mitochondrial DNA can be repaired by homologous recombination when we fuse this mitochondria and in ciliates this, which are like uh, very complex cells very metabolically active complex cells mitochondria we, we see a lot of mitochondria and all these mitochondria are localized to precisely the parts of the cell that need more uh, more ATP but I don't want to talk about the first set of adaptations today I'm going to focus on the second major set of adaptations which have to do with uh, mitochondrial ultrastructure because, well, right now during my PhD, this is the major focus of my studies. So it turns out that mitochondrial bioenergetics also depends on mitochondrial ultrastructure. So if we have a closer look at mitochondrial ultrastructure, more specifically the, uh, the envelope of mitochondria, we see that, well, mitochondria is surrounded by two different membranes an outer membrane and an inner membrane 
and the inner membrane itself can be subdivided into two different domains, the inner boundary membrane and the crystal membrane. And each one of those different subdomains have different functions, um, different functions. For example, the inner boundary membrane is mostly in charge of uh, importing proteins and transporting uh, metabolites between the mitochondrial matrix and the cytoplasm, whereas the crystal membranes are those membranes that protrude into the mitochondrial matrix and allocate all the machinery for oxidative phosphorylation or aerobic respiration. So these membranes are enriched in protein complexes that produce energy. Now, these two different membrane subdomains are connected to each other as specific tubular or neck-like structures called uh, crystal junctions. And well, and crystal junctions are very important because it is these tubular structures that connect those different membrane subdomains that are creating crystal microcompartments, and therefore, and therefore, by creating microcompartments, these crystal junctions are optimizing respiration by concentrating solids and all these reactions in crystal. And it turns out there's there's a protein complex called mycos that is responsible for creating crystal junctions. So mycos constitutes the molecular basis of mitochondrial crystal. And mycos is a protein complex that is composed of six different proteins. And these proteins all localize to crystal junctions and they determine the development of crystal. So we have six different proteins of which MIG-60 and MIG-10 are the two most important and central components of the protein complex. So what happens we, when we delete uh, mycos from E-cells, for example, is that we go from a normal-looking mitochondrial with beautiful cristae and beautiful crystal junctions to mitochondria that, that lose the crystal junctions. And because mitochondria lose crystal junctions because of the absence of mycos, then we see an internal accumulation of membrane vesicles. Basically, what's going on is that because crystal junctions are being lost, then cristae are detaching from the inner boundary membrane and crystal membrane, crystal membranes are accumulating in, in the matrix of mitochondria. And this obviously has um, a very deleterious effect in the respiration, in the respiratory function of mitochondria. So it turns out that mycos, this protein complex, is combining different functions in order to create crystal junctions. So the first function of mycos, mostly through uh, a subunit called MIG-60, is to anchor the mitochondrial inner membrane to the mitochondrial outer membrane, which is a very important function to stabilize mitochondrial crystal. The second function of mycos is to create negative curvature, so the inner membrane can actually invaginate and give rise to crystal membranes. And the protein uh, and the mycosubunit that is in charge of this is called MIG-10. And then there's a third function that we can attribute to mycos, which is the differentiation of this uh, of the inner boundary membrane from the crystal membrane. And there are probably three, four uh, accessory proteins or stabilizing factors that are in charge of this. And one of these um, two proteins that are probably doing this are MIG-26 and MIG-27, which can actually bind cardiolipin, which is a very important uh, important lipid of 
the mitochondrial inner membrane. And by doing this, uh, mycos is segregating the lipid composition of the crystal membrane from the inner boundary membrane. So as part of my PhD project, I'm studying the evolution of cristae or the evolution of uh, mitochondria, mitochondrial structure. So the first thing that I did was to investigate the evolutionary history of mycos. I wanted to see how mycos had evolved and if that could give me a clue of how mitochondrial cristae at the fore how mitochondria as a whole uh, enable the specialization of mitochondria as a respiratory organelle. So I did BLAST and HMM searches against eukaryotic genomes and transcriptions. Basically, as I assembled a data set of very diverse eukaryotes that represented the whole eukaryotic diversity. And then I used uh, some reference proteins and I searched these proteins against the genomes of all these eukaryotes. And the first conclusion that I got after analyzing my, my results was that both mycos and their four crystal junctions are ancestral features of eukaryotes. So in, um, in, in animal and in fungi, mycos is composed of six different subunits. And what I found was that of these different six subunits, at least three subunits are consistently found in all the major groups of eukaryotes, which allow us eventually to infer that the last common ancestor of all eukaryotes already had a mycos complex composed of at least three different subunits that was controlling the development of mitochondrial cristae. So what, what this means is that the last common ancestor of all modern mitochondria already had the capability of, develop, of developing cristae. So the second major uh, finding that I did was that mycos co-occurs with mitochondrial cristae. So it turns out that there are a lot of eukaryotes that have adapted to an anaerobic lifestyle. And by doing so, they have lost the capability of aerobic respiration. So in those eukaryotes that perform aerobic respiration and therefore have cristae, we see, we find a typical mycos complex. And even in those eukaryotes that are sometimes anaerobic but still have cristae, we see that they still have retained the two most important subunits of mycos, MIG-60 and MIG-10, and therefore they have the capability of developing fully functional cristae. But there are some instances in which there are certain anaerobic mitochondria that don't have cristae per se, but have certain convoluted morphology of the inner mitochondrial membrane. And one ex and such example is Cryptosporium parvum, which is a parasite that has adapted to very hypoxic environments. And this organism does not perform aerobic respiration and does not have cristae in its mitochondrion, but it has conserved the MIG-10 subunit. And this sub the presence of this subunit in its genome seems to be explaining the very convoluted morphology of the inner mitochondrial membrane. But then, more interestingly, in those organisms that have more derived mitochondria, that are called hydrogenosomes or mitosomes, 
and therefore don't, uh, that don't perform aerobic respiration, we see no trace of any mycosubunit in their genomes. So the overall picture here is that uh, the presence of the mycos complex correlates with the presence of cristae. Once you lose the mycos complex, you're basically losing the capability of developing fully functional cristae. Of course, you, can, you also need to, to lose uh, the machinery that you allocate in this membrane, for example, the, the oxidative phosphorylation machinery. So once you lose those two things, you are not capable of developing mitochondrial cristae anymore. And the third major finding was that uh, it turns out the mycos is present in alpha bacteria. And if you remember well, alpha bacteria is the group from which mitochondria evolved. But even within alpha bacteria, mycos is not present in all of them. Mycos is only restricted to certain groups of alpha bacteria, which are those bacteria that are more metabolically, metabolically complex. So we don't see mycos or mix 60 which is the major subunit of, of mycos, in the Rickettsialis or in the third 11 group. And if we have a closer look at the homolog of mix 60 in alpha bacteria, we see that this protein actually has the same overall structure. So in eukaryotes, MIG-60 has a targeting, a targeting signal or a presequence that is in charge of targeting the protein to the mitochondrion. But then we have a transmembrane segment that is responsible for anchoring the protein MIG-60 to, to the inner membrane. Then that is followed by a coil coli region and finally followed by a conserved myofilin domain that is probably likely the most important uh, part of the protein because it is highly conserved at the sequence level. So in, ter in terms of conservation, the whole protein is conserved at the structural level, but only the C-terminal part of the protein, the part in green, is conserved at the sequence level and this is actually the part of the protein that allowed me to detect this protein in alpha bacteria. So now, it turns out that mycos has uh, alpha bacterial origin, and also the structure of uh, mycos in both eukaryotes and alpha bacteria is very similar. So this raises the question of whether there has been a functional conservation between alpha bacterial and mitochondrial MIG-60. Again, MIG-60 is the main component and central component of mycos, and it's probably respons largely responsible for its function. So in order to answer this question, it is interesting cons to consider the observation that it turns out that a lot of those alpha bacteria develop intracytoplasmic membranes, or ICMs, that resemble mitochondrial cristae. So we have two examples here. We have Rhodospirillum rubrum and Rhodospirillum palustris, which are two different alpha bacteria that photosynthesize, and they allocate the photosynthetic machinery to these membranes in order to produce bioenergy. So in this regard, ICMs in bacteria are very similar to mitochondrial cristae because they are, they are, they are responsible for bioenergetic function. So basically, 
they produce a lot of ATP by housing protein complexes that transfer electrons and that uh, pump proteins uh, and eventually do uh, phosphorylation. And even within alpha bacteria, ICMs have very uh, are very diverse morphologically and functionally, but they all perform bioenergetic functions. So the ancestral type of ICMs in alpha bacteria is that that is capable of performing performing an oxygenic photosynthesis. But it turns out that some alpha bacteria have transformed these ICMs to carry out different physiological processes. For example, some alpha bacteria use these membranes for nitrification. Other alpha bacteria use them for methane oxidation. And still, I argue that other alpha bacteria have co-opted these membranes for magnetotaxis, which is basically a capability that certain bacteria have to navigate the magnetic field of the Earth and position themselves within, uh, within this magnetic field in order to reach their optimal environment. So what I want to talk about now is the homology hypothesis. Basically, everything I've said is with the aim of trying to connect uh, mitochondrial cristae with alpha pyrobacterial ICMs. And this is a homology hypothesis. The homology hypothesis basically states that mitochondrial cristae, which are these very important adaptations for bioenergetic function, evolve from alpha pyrobacterial ICMs. And if this is true, then I would expect that MIG-60, which is the main component of mycos, is performing the same role in alpha pyrobacterial envelopes as eukaryotic MIG-60 is doing in mitochondria. So we know what MIG-60 is doing in mitochondria, but we don't know what MIG-60 is doing in alpha pyrobacteria. But given that alpha pyrobacteria also use these membranes for bioenergetic functions, then I would hypothesize that MIG-60 might be performing the same role. And if this is true, then that would be supporting the homology hypothesis between these two different structures. And the homology hypothesis is not new. It, it is not my idea. It actually traces back to uh, the 80s, where different uh, microscopists had actually discovered this similarity between alpha bacteria and mitochondria. And now, the homology hypothesis relies on another hypothesis that I call the functional conservation hypothesis for MIG-60. And there are actually several lines of evidence that argue in favor of the functional conservation hypothesis and therefore also the homology hypothesis between alpha bacteria, alpha pleurobacterial ICMs, and mitochondrial cristae. But the first line of evidence is the sequence similarity that there is between the two versions of MIG-60. The second line of evidence is that both alpha pleurobacterial and mitochondrial MIG-60 have the same structure in general. So despite more than 2 billion years of evolution, the structure of the protein has remained the same. 
So that is actually evidence for the functional conservation of this protein. Then there are two more important lines of evidence. The third one is that it turns out that MIX-60 in alpha bacteria is expressed precisely under those conditions in which uh, ICMs develop. So for example, uh, several alpha bacterial transition between a heterotrophic and a photosynthetic growth. And when these alpha bacterial are transitioning to a photosynthetic growth, they start developing ICMs. And this development of ICMs coincides with the expression profile of MEG60 in these bacteria. And moreover, when I was looking through the literature, I found at least three or four studies in which they had analyzed the protein composition of isolated ICMs. And it turns out that MEG60, this protein, is actually enriched in these ICMs. So when I take together all these lines of evidence, I I gain certain confidence in that that MIG-60 is probably doing the same thing in the two groups, in alpha pleurobacteria, alpha pleurobacteria and in mitochondria, which is further support for the homology hypothesis that the two structures are related and that cristae evolved from ICMs. So now we know that mitochondria are, well, we know what MIG-60 is doing in mitochondria, but we don't know what MIG-60 is doing in alpha bacteria. So the question is, what are the possible mechanistic roles of MIG-60 in alpha bacteria? So here we have an alpha bacterial envelope. And basically, by inference from what we know uh, from MIG-60 mitochondria, I would argue that MIG-60 might be creating ICM junctions basically by undergoing homotypic interactions between different MIG-60 subunits. MIG-60 would be creating these NACs that um, compartmentalize ICM metabolism. But then we know very well that in mitochondria, uh, uh, MIG-60 is also involved in creating contact sites between the inner membrane and the outer membrane. Now, alpha bacteria also have two different membranes, and they have the same protein partners that MIG-60 have in the outer membrane. So I argue that uh, MIG-60 is probably creating this contact sites between the two envelopes, and this would be an additional function to stabilize ICMs in alpha bacteria. And by doing these two things, one and two, then MIG-60 would probably also um, compartmentalize ICMs by restricting metabolites and different proteins into the ICM lumen and therefore uh, improving the efficiency of the reactions that are happening there. An additional function uh, of MIG-60, given that, uh, well, the composition the protein composition of the ICM is clearly different from the protein composition of the cytoplasmic membrane of alpha bacteria. is that MEX60 would be involved in differentiating or somehow restricting the diffusion of protein complexes between the ICM and the cytoplasmic membrane of alpha bacteria. And finally, I think that if it turns out that MEX60 is not actually involved in creating ICM junctions or contact sites, then it is probably assisting protein secretion by basically bringing together 
proteins of the cytoplasmic membrane and the outer membrane. So what I'm doing right now in the lab is to test the homology hypothesis. So I'm currently working on two different alpha proteobacteria and I'm knocking out, well, I knocked out the genes, two different genes, MIG-60 and another candidate protein that I have in order to see how the morphology of ICMs is disrupted. What I expect from this is to see that the ICMs are actually separating our from this from the alpha proteobacterial envelope uh, something else that i'm doing right now is that i have uh, made the strains that will overexpress these proteins to see what the effect of the overexpression of these proteins is on uh, these bacterial cells i predict that the overexpression of these proteins are going to increase the connections between the, I, uh, the ICMs and the envelope, or between different ICMs. And another thing that I'm doing in order to experimentally test the homology hypothesis or my bioinformatic predictions is that I'm currently working with a yeast knockout strain that does not have the MIG-60 homolog and therefore, and therefore has those mitochondria that accumulate internal crystal membranes. But I'm introducing the bacterial homologs of these proteins into yeast to see whether their expression is going to rescue the original phenotype or not. So if it turns out that the bacterial homologs, even though they are very distant, uh, rescue the phenotype of the yeast mutant, then that would be evidence for the conservation hypothesis, the functional conservation hypothesis between, this two, between the two versions of the protein, and also the homology hypothesis that basically states that Christi, respiratory Christi mitochondria evolved from ICMs. Now, the second part of my PhD, which I also started already, is related to investigating the phylogenetic origin of mitochondria. So in order to do this, I started the sequencing of some new alpha pluribacteria that branch very, very deeply in the alpha pluribacterial tree. And I hope that by increasing the sampling of these different diverse alpha pluribacteria, I will have more resolution in order to address the question of where the mitochondrial lineage branches within pluribacteria. And if I'm able to uh, add some resolution to the phylogenetic tree, then we will be able to uh, have a better idea of what, how the ancestor of mitochondria looked like. So in this regard, I'm gonna leave you the, with, this, uh, with this question of what was the nature of the mitochondrial ancestor? We basically have two options. One is the, that the ancestor that gave rise to mitochondria was a very specialized and highly reduced alpha pluribacterium, like a parasitic rickettsial, or two, that the ancestor of mitochondria was a more complex and metabolically versatile alpha pluribacterium, probably a stem alpha pluribacterium that have the capability of performing an oxygenic photosynthesis. I myself uh, tend to think that it was probably the second option in which the ancestor of mitochondria was a more complex bacterium that probably provided a more, a stronger 
uh, selective advantage to the host. And if you if you think about what I've told you so far, uh, basically my investigation is pointing towards the direction that the ancestor of mitochondria had uh, the capability of performing ICMs, but Rickettsialis or very reduced alpha pluribacteria cannot develop ICMs. So that's why I think that probably the ancestor of mitochondria was a more complex bacterium that used ICMs for uh, photosynthesis, and that during the evolution of mitochondria, these photosynthetic ICMs were transformed into respiratory cristae. So, well, this is, I think this is the question that I would like to answer uh, for my PhD. It is, uh, well, did mitochondria evolve from a free-living purple bacterium that is a photosynthetic alpha pure bacterium or a rickettsial endosymbiont? So I'm basically tackling this question from two very different perspectives. One is from uh, the angle of uh, the evolution of the internal architecture of mitochondria and the other one would be phylogenomics by sequencing more and more genomes and then do uh, more rigorous phylogenetic analysis. And well, that's pretty much everything I had to tell you today. Thank you for your attention. And I'm looking forward to answer some questions. Well, thank you very much, Sergio. That was, that was fantastic. I have to say, personally, that was one of the more uh, understandable biology talks as a non-biologist. I was able to much more than I expected. Oh, thank um, you. Question. Open the floor for questions. There's yes. a feedback somewhere. somewhere. I'm not sure. Anyways. Um, Sergio, hi. Thank you very much for your talk. I hi. really enjoyed it. I'm not a biologist either, and it, it was uh, I was surprised by how much I was able to follow. So good job. Um, if the uh, if the proto mitochondria was a complex alpha proteobacteria, what was the environmental pressure to cause it to endosymbiote with a proto mitochondria? Yes. Like, if it was complex and happy, essentially, what caused it to invaginate and create the mitochondria? Yeah, so, oh, right. So basically, uh, in order to think about the reason why this uh, alpha bacterium became an endosymbiont, we also have to think about the nature of the host. How did the host benefit from the endosymbiont? So it turns out these the, this complex alpha bacteria are usually photosynthetic. So they do, they perform photosynthesis to produce ATP and they perform this photosynthesis in those ICMs. And different studies have actually shown that a lot of these bacteria secrete a lot of those uh, uh, photosynthetic, uh, photosynthetic products to the environment. So if you have an, a bacterium that is already secreting useful uh, products to the environment, then any host can actually internalize that bacterium would benefit from those uh, secretions because those secretions can then be used for different processes. So that's what I think was the reason for the initial endosymbiosis, uh, the secretion of photosynthetic products to the environment that the host could have used for uh, further metabolism. Thanks. Is, is that testable? 
Uh, well, every evolutionary hypothesis is very, very difficult to test, but we can basically accumulate indirect evidence and measure like uh, how plausible each one of these alternatives is. And also, for example, doing phylogenetic analysis will uh, shed some light on this, because if it turns out that the mitochondrial lineage actually branches with endosymbiotic rickettsialis, I think we will have to discard my hypothesis that the ancestor was a complex bacterium, and we will have to think about how a more simplified bacterium established a relationship with a with host. So there are different, uh, different directions that we can take in order to try to test this hypothesis. But we, we will never be able to definitely say what happened. There's a question in the chat room. Um, I, okay, I'll, I'll wait for my turn after the question here. Oh, do, you, do you see the question on the, uh, okay, I'll read the question yes, I, I, from you, Sergio. Do purple okay. non-sulfur alpha-proteobacteria typically respire oxygen as a phenotype within the clade? Yes, that's true. Uh, purple bacteria have basically the same respiratory chain that mitochondria have. So the respiratory chain of mitochondria is just a reduced version of the respiratory chain that you find in purple bacteria. So some reduction, reduction had to happen, but basically it is just a subset. So there's, it's not difficult to imagine how this could have happened. So in terms of respiration, alpha bacteria have everything that is needed for optimal respiration. Um, Sergio, I am, I, uh, I am interested in um, hearing your thoughts about potentially um, reconstructing the ancient um, Mike 60, 60 gene and engineering the um, bacteria with that. Yeah. Uh, would I you be interested? Yes, I would be interested. The thing is that MIG-60 is a very divergent protein, and um, I, I'm a little bit afraid of how robust the, the inference of the ancestral sequence will be. But what mm -hmm. I think we could try is to uh, reconstruct the sequence and then or at least reconstruct the eukaryotic sequence and then try to insert it into alpha pluribacteria yeah. to see mm -hmm. what it would do with alpha pluribacteria. Yeah. Do you, do you have uh, like sequences for that? Because I think you did some phylogenetics studies yeah, yourself. Yeah, I do, I do have uh, a broad sample of sequences from different eukaryotes and also, and also alpha pluribacteria. Yeah, we should be able to do that fairly straightforward, actually. If, um, but we can chat afterwards. But um, if you're interested in something like that, at least I think it would be valuable just to see how the ancestral one looks like, sequence-wise. Yeah, yeah? Yes, yes, uh, I think do, we should talk about this. Do you uh, have the structure information for my 60? No, there are no structures for this protein, unfortunately. Is there a specific reason for that? Is it difficult to crystallize or? I don't know, uh, I have no idea. Uh, 
I can I can ask the cell biologists who are directly studying the protein complex in mitochondria uh, to see if they have any plans of uh, getting the structure of this protein. Yeah, it would be interesting. Uh, like, what will be the first thing you would look at once once you have the ancient sequence for this gene, just by looking at the sequence? Yeah, yeah, I think it would be very very useful to have the structure of the protein. Transmembrane proteins are hard to crystallize. That's true. Yeah. Although, like this, uh, this protein has only one transmembrane segment. It is not a polytopic protein, so maybe that would make it a little bit easier. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think we should definitely explore. It seems very, it seems very suitable for that. And like, I wonder what you would see if you engineer your bacteria with an ancestral version. Either yeah, yeah. I, I think Sergio has experience with the bacterial, like engineering the alpha proteobacteria. Uh, there's yeah, a question here that yeah. says you guys should consider either a eukaryotic or a bacterial host for your reconstructive approach. I will read you another question. How can you uh, discount convergent evolution? That's a question yeah. for you, Sergio. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. That's a very good question. Uh, convergent evolution in the sense that both alpha bacteria and eukaryotes have achieved the same solution of using the same protein for creating membrane invaginations. Is that what you mean, Pac? Okay, so the protein in eukaryotes is clearly homologous to the protein in alpha bacteria. So, well, there's a direct uh, genealogical connection between the two proteins. But in terms of uh, function, I think it would be very difficult to uh, discount convergent involution because actually I think that the the protein might be performing a more general role in envelope biogenesis and that the protein has been recruited independently in some lineages and also in eukaryotes for helping the development of uh, Christae and, uh, and ICMs. But it has been recruited precisely because the protein is very useful in connecting the two different membranes. So, um, well, yeah, I think the it's very difficult to discount the, the idea that the function of the protein has been independently recruited for the same purpose, and that would be a convergent evolution. Um, basically, but what, what I want to know is that whether the protein can have the same function in the two very distant groups, that is mitochondria and alpha bacteria. And if that is true, I think that would be evidence for the idea that Christy could have evolved from ICMs, although I don't think it would be definitive. There's another question here. Do the mycos family of proteins have other functions in bacteria? Also, are they found across other clades as a result of horizontal gene transfer? Yeah, surprisingly, yeah. It, it looks like well, there's only one mycos protein that is found in alpha bacteria, 
And we don't know the function of that protein alpha, in alpha proteobacteria. That is what I'm investigating right now in order to test the homology hypothesis. And surprisingly, it looks like the protein has not been transferred to other groups of bacteria. Because when I do searches against uh, uniprot, uniprot, for example, uh, all the results I get is from alpha proteobacteria, even though we have, a, we have more than 3,000 or 4,000 genomes for all you bacteria. So it looks like the protein is, has not been transferred horizontally to other uh, bacterial clades, which uh, it's difficult to imagine, but uh, I can think of different examples of different proteins that have not been transferred horizontally. I don't know what the reason for this is. It might be that the protein has many inter interaction partners, so that makes the protein less prone to be transferred. But it looks like the protein has not been transferred to our clades. I think uh, there's not. Okay. Betul? Oh, no, no, I was wondering, uh, there's a follow up question asking this is interesting. Can these proteins be used to estimate the timing of the emergence of the eukaryotic cell, or do you think it is too narrow of a slice of information? I love this question. I can't wait to hear your uh, answer. I think it is, uh, we don't have a lot of information with this protein, actually, in order to try to estimate the timing of the emergence of eukaryotes. We have to use as much as data available as we can. And very recently, actually, uh, a paper in Nature appeared that addressed this question. And if you give me a second, I will find it and I will send it. Basically, the authors investigated all the proteins of eukaryotes, I mean, all in, 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 that are present in the genomes of eukaryotes. And they uh, did a chronogram that is uh, dated phylogenetic trees, and they classified these proteins according to how old each one of these proteins uh, was. And they found that the mitochondrial proteins relative to endomembrane proteins and nucleus proteins are the most recent proteins. So it turns like, according to this analysis, it looks like mitochondria actually came last from all the other eukaryotic innovations that happened during the emergence of eukaryotes. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, the person asking says that this conflicts with Nick, I believe he's referring to Nick Butterfly, uh, his Lane's theory, Nick's Lane, Nick Lane, I'm sorry, Nick Lane, Nick Lane's theory. Yes, yes, yes that's true. Yeah, that's Could you maybe in a couple sentences tell us about what theory is that? Okay, it's so... Just, uh, exactly. uh, in terms of the origin of eukaryotes, there are basically two uh, competing hypotheses. Well, there are several, but these are the two main competing hypotheses. One says that uh, the host that internalized the mitochondrial ancestor was a host that had the capability of doing phagocytosis, which means that the host probably had some primitive cytoskeleton and probably some primitive endomembrane system. The second set of hypotheses basically state that the host was an archaeon that had no internal complexity. It was a simple prokaryote. So one prokaryote internalized another prokaryote. And 
the hypothesis of Bill Martin and Nick Lane states that the host had to be a simple prokaryote, an archaeon, that had no endomembrane system or no cytoskeleton. And the reason for that is that mitochondria was the source of energy that allowed all the other eukaryotic features to evolve. I mean, they argue that uh, the endomembrane system and the cytoskeleton cannot evolve if you don't have basically an energy factory inside your cell that will sustain the expression of all those proteins and that would be the mitochondria. So in their hypothesis, mitochondria came first and that increased the production of energy and that subsequently allowed the evolution of a lot of new uh, protein families that would uh, establish the endomembrane system and the cytoskeleton. I see. That's that's wonderful, and it's a very. Um, if there's no other question, that also marks it as a very big ending. I I believe you're going to be exploring these different ideas um, during your PhD studies and even further. And uh, are, is there any other question from the audience? Uh, I just shared the. Oh, okay, great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, if Jacob is here, I will leave it to Jacob to finalize. But thank you for your time, Sergio. And I'm sure we will hear from you uh, again. Your presentation was wonderful, and your slides were very explanatory. It's, it's pretty, very good job. You mentioned you managed to talk about molecular biology without a single molecule picture. <laughs> thank you about. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, and thanks thank everyone for coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, come to Upcycle. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think you'd be a good fit at Epsicon, Sanjay, uh, Sergio. <laughs> um, it was very much, uh, very much in line with uh, the kind of see there. OK, thank you very much for the invitation uh, again. And I hope to join you for a future session. Thank you. Thank you, Sergio. Thank you. Thank you.